This week on FX Guide TV. We look at the tech behind Rise of Planet of the Apes at Weta and speak to Peregrine Labs about their deep color nuke plugins. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale. Welcome to FX Guide, and we have a great show for you today. Now, one of the blockbuster VFX films of the summer was Weta's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. The film was great for many reasons. Its amazing motion capture approaches, but also its deployment of deep color compositing, something we covered here at FX Guide back in EP95 in October 2010. He hasn't spent any time with other chips. We're gonna stay here now. We're not going home right now. Stupid monkey. He'll learn his boss soon enough. start with uh, some of the basic concepts of decomposing, but I'm really interested to move from the theoretical to the practical. But basically what we're talking about is having a sense of depth, and I guess the easiest example is a cloud. We actually sort of know not only its position in three space when doing a, a, a sort of a 2D composite, we actually understand almost its density through the cloud. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess the really interesting thing is Weta's uh, development of that, which I think started with the day the Earth stood still, is that right? Yeah, that was the first film we tried it on. It was actually just a, it was the swarm element in, in that movie that wasn't being rendered with holdouts. So the idea was to try and do those holdouts in comp rather than doing them at render time. Right, so if I've got a large swarm attacking the, the truck and I've got that as a render pass, in fact, the truck is another render pass. Now, of course, we think of them as 3D objects, but actually at the point of rendering, they're just flat 2D. Yet the 2D truck will sit in the middle of the 2D cloud. Yeah, yeah, so there's parts of that swarm that should be behind the truck and parts of it which should be in front. But when you just look at the, the image out the renderer, it's just a flat image with all of the particles in there, even the ones which should be invisible. Now that was done with your own code, and presumably you weren't even comping a nuke then, were you? You were doing it in Shake? No, that was, it was Colin Doncaster who wrote that one in, um, as a, as a, just as a file-in node in, in Shake. So there was no deep data being passed around within the comp. It was just all done in one node. Okay. And then moving forward, it was used more uh, aggressively, I guess, in Avatar? Yes, it was. That's when we actually built our, a, a proper deep workflow within Shake again as with dedicated nodes for handling deep data and passing them around and merging them and so on. So let's discuss how we might use it. And I, I think there's a great example that you showed of, uh, in Avatar where, uh, in fact, obviously that, that Z-depth information, which is obviously multi-dimensionally uh, deep, as opposed to just being like one number per pixel. Um, you took the color pass and then, could you explain what you did in terms of unpre-multiplying the color to apply it to uh, do that in that sequence? Yeah, that's what, what Nuke 6.3 has as its deep recolor node. And that was, we did that because at that stage there was no way of getting the color information in deep. So you could get the opacity of each sample in depth, but you couldn't get the color. So we just had to assume that every sample had the same unpre-multiplied color. So we unpre-multiply the the EXR, which is the flat beauty image, and then pre-multiply each of those values by the alpha of the sample. Okay, so if I had a cloud, for example, and there was sun shining on the cloud, and maybe at the back it's getting golden rays, at the front, if I'm just reading a kind of mid-gray level, what you were saying is at that stage, all I had was the, the changes in opacity through the cloud, but I couldn't tell that it got more yellow, for example. 
No, no, not, not at, the, at the back. And that's a problem when you come to do a composite, because if you want to put somebody in between that grey bit at the front and the golden rays at the back, you'll still see those golden rays showing through. So you get a kind of transparency look to the cloud because you can't distinguish where it's changing its colour. Right, so moving forward to Planet of the Apes, were you using that on Planet of the Apes? We weren't using PRMAN 16 for Planet of the Apes, so we couldn't use that. Instead, what we did was we split the renders up when we had to. If there was a, one of those transparency problems from the colour edges, we would just split the render up into two separate elements, and then we could composite them properly. So in terms of production shots, I mean, was there just a couple that you used it on? Did you use it on like all the shots? I mean, how much is it deployed? The, the deep compositing? Yeah. Um, we just do it by default. Every, every render has got deep data. Whether or not the compositors choose to use it is up to them. But it's always there if they need it. And they tend to err on the side of caution and use it even if they're not sure they're going to need it because you never know how the shot's going to change. And deep compositing is the easiest way to react to changes down the line. So it's always good to start with it. So let's um, discuss how you'd integrate it with live action because in Avatar, in a sequence, you know, in the uh, fully CG world, it's probably easier to imagine that that depth data is going to work really well. But once we get to apes, of course, it's a live action plate that you're putting the CG into. So apart from the fact that the apes look spectacular, um, when I'm trying to have a, an ape, for example, straddling an actor so that they're either side of them, um, of course, the, the original photography, the car he's standing beside, the road he's on, and the buildings way off into the distance, that's all just the one layer of what was shot. So how do I get uh, sort of a 2D deep composite so that the 3D deep composite actually sits in the right Z space? What you have to do is essentially guess what the depth of the, of the element is in the live action plate. And you can do that from looking at it. So for example, if somebody is straddling the actor, if the, if the ape is straddling the actor, you know that the actor's depth has to be between the legs of the ape. So you can look at the deep data in the 3D viewer and decide where to place the, the roto for the actor. Right, so I would say do the roto to isolate the actor. And then I think what you were doing was you were putting actually a card in and then lifting from the card where it was in Z space. But of course you don't need the card, you don't need to project on it because once you've got the data of where the card sits, you can just literally copy that over, is that right? Yeah, so all we're taking from that card is its depth channel. We're not using the, the RGB at all, so. And in that instance, it's still pretty flat. So in fact, it's the, the person lying there hasn't got depth from there, from one arm to the other. They're still kind of flat, but at least they sit in the right place. Yeah, the they scene. don't need to have depth because the only thing is they have to be in front of what should be behind them and behind and what should be in front, in front of, of them. them. Right. So the depth doesn't actually need to be that accurate. But and if they're moving around, the card might have to animate in space, but it doesn't have to do it that accurately. You don't need that many keyframes to make sure that the holdouts are still working properly. Right, but I guess the advantage is that uh, because of the nature of the OpenEXR files and the way that that's being extended, we actually effectively have a much better sort of anti-aliasing going on because you actually have information that's really good, both from the roto being anti-aliased, but also the it's not like we have an on-off on the uh, Z-depth information of the actual 3D deep composite. That actually sort of maps pretty well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with live action, you think, well, you don't really need deep data. You could use other techniques. And it's true. It just makes things easy. So you can do the roto without knowing what the animation is going to be, whereas typically you may want to pass the animation of the, of the ape over to the roto department so they know what to roto. They know which leg is going to be in front and which, which is going thing, to be. Yeah. And then if the animation changes, it has to go back to roto. But if you do it with deep, you have that flexibility. You just tell them to roto everything and it Right, works. so if I have a new performance of the ape, it just drops right into the comp and I'm away I go. Yes, yeah. But that isn't the case if the ape is jumping over cars. And one of the great things in apes is there's a large uh, capture volume. And so you had 
actual cars with actual actors, but also the apes having to jump over them. So in this case, I presume you can do object tracking on the car and put in sort of dummy geometry to get the actual Z depth of the car? Yes, yeah, which, which you probably need anyway. I mean, in, in, for, for a car in Planet of the Apes, there's lots of reflections in the car, so we need that dummy geometry to get the reflections of the apes right and, and other bits and uh, the, the contact shadows and so on. So that, for that, we need that anyway, so we can just repurpose that and use that as a depth guide for the, for the deep data. So in that case, uh, you've basically got dummy geometry anyway, you've done the object tracking for the car, you also do obviously the camera tracking for the camera, and then the ape is both responding to that dummy geometry where it sits in three space, but it's also, I presume, having to deal with, well, displacements and stuff, or is it, is it is the tolerance enough that if you have displacement maps on geometry and stuff uh, for CG items as opposed to live action items that you can get away with it? I guess you can always tweak it. Yes, yeah, that's the... You, I mean, for the, the, the real strength of it is that it's there for the first look and, and then you can decide what to do and it will help later with that. So for example, on the cars, the, the cars were kind of like library cars, but if there's a dented car, then it's not going to be that accurate. So you have to come back and, and, and do roto to get a, a more accurate edge, but only where it's going to be noticed. And then on the bridge, there was obviously fog and uh, you know, it was a kind of a plot point that they couldn't see through the fog. Hmm. So it played quite close to the action and I believe you obviously could do volumetrics and fully render that, but you might have actually used shot elements for some of that stuff and then just given it a volume, is that right? Yes, most of the clouds on the Golden Gate Bridge sequence were actually just 2D elements, but they were given thickness in deep, so that when you deep combine that thick cloud into the volume, you get that kind of foggy effect as it disappears off into the distance. So a lot of the stuff we've been discussing, I kind of have presumed a 2D camera, but the deep compositing accuracy of depth placement must really come into its own on any kind of stereo production. Yes, I mean, the, the, I, we haven't really used it heavily on live action stereo, but again, for the things like the Roto, it, it makes things easy because you only need the one card when you're placing your Roto in depth, and that will work for both cameras. So it does actually help you to reduce the amount of doubling of effort you need to do to do a stereo show. So how bad is this in terms of file size? I mean, uh, if I've got a normal OpenEXR file, I'm going to have obviously different passes or different layers moving along with just the hero stuff. but. How much am I making the pipeline dense because I'm having to shove a lot more information down? It is a lot bigger. It's, um, it can get to be maybe about 10 times bigger is the, the, the heaviest that we would normally do. You can actually turn up compression because you don't need lots of information where you know you're not going to need to do any deep compositing. So you can be careful about how you store samples and try and only store as much deep data as you need. Right, so for example, if we had deep data for us um, and there's nothing behind us until it hits a wall, you don't need to store any intermediary values because presumably, at, at best, uh, it just sits there and at worst, you could just interpolate between the last value I had and the next one I have. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you do. But I would imagine that the sort of pipeline considerations are slightly different from, say, SIM data because with SIM data, once I've got the SIM, I then obviously don't need to pass the SIM data down the pipeline. There's no reason for the new cardist at the final sort of touching, say, to be worrying about SIM data. But I imagine the deep compositing kind of carries right the way through your pipe. Yes, and the other thing that's a bit different for a, for a kind of pipeline point of view is the deep data actually gets sent to the artist's machines, whereas SIM data and shadow caches and so on just tend to stay on the render farm and they don't need to move across your network. So that is a bit of a difference, that you've got this data that stays around a lot longer and is being sent backwards and forwards to workstations. But I guess the, the upside of it is because that data is right there, even on a very complex shot, if there's a last minute change, you, you suddenly save a whole lot of time because, as you say, you don't have to redo 
and in a sense you can just sort of put it together I guess with more scripting to get you kind of a sensible first place. Sure, because, because the order of the comp is completely order independent, you can put them elements together in any order you like, you can automatically comp a whole series of elements together. So that actually makes things a lot easier and you tend to want the pipeline to automatically give you the first look comp. That's pretty straightforward with not much Python. So, so we discussed the fact that the colour information wasn't there on the uh, initial uh, setup that you've got from your own work. Do you think that you'll incorporate, say, Nuke and its colour, uh, and obviously from RenderMan, the colour information on deep compositing into a pipeline moving forward? Do you feel like this is something that will become standard for a wetter pipeline? Yes, well, I think it pretty much is standard. Um, the only thing is that we're not rendering the, the deep colour out, but it's, we can, we've already got the button to turn on to do that. And we do you already, expect to do that? I mean, do you expect that to be naturally part of it? We or? would only do that where we see that it's a problem. And so if in version 3 there's, we see the problem, then we'll turn it on for version 4. Because it's a, an overhead on data or an overhead yes. on rendering? It's, it's not an overhead on rendering, but it is on data and also on the speed of the comp because that data has to be streamed over the network to the artist's workstation. It's much quicker for them just to read the opacity data and have, have it recolored. So I guess I'm going to ask you a subjective opinion now, but clearly Nuke has just come out with a lot of this deep compositing and it's really uh, taking hold, but you've used it now on a few productions. So where is Nuke's 1.0 implementation of this compared to where Weta's at? Is it caught up with you or...? We've got a few extra bits that we use, that they're mainly for, for effects and volumetrics that we use that aren't yet in Nuke, but, but as far as a core toolset, it is kind of complete. Um, the only thing that we did on Avatar that you can't do in Nuke 6.3 was the defocus, but Colin Doncaster has written a, a plugin to do that, so we're, we're pretty much future complete as to where we were on Avatar in Nuke 6.3. In our second half this week, we speak to Colin Doncaster, who you just heard mentioned there, from Peregrine Labs, who makes some really innovative Nuke plugins and who also use deep compositing. So, talk to me about Bouquet. Now, you, you've actually got a, a studio doing work, but you're also a lab that's producing products. And Bouquet is what, the first product that's come out, but not necessarily the first that you've put out into the market, is that right? That's right. Um, Bouquet is the first product we've released, but we have other products like uh, Yeti, which is a fur and feather tool as well that other studios are using, but not released yet. So Yeti's a really good fur and feather tool, but it's still in that kind of beta testing, getting feedback phase? That's correct. Um, just because fur and feathers is something that's a much bigger problem doing bokeh, at least sort of as a plug-in stage, and it becomes a really big pipeline issue. So we want to make sure it's a stable sort of really strong pipeline-based product before we release it. And so Yeti, I think, really points to the fact that you've got tremendous 3D skills, but Bouquet is actually kind of a nuke, if you want to call it this, 2D product. I don't think it is a 2D product, but you yeah. know what I mean? It's like falls more in the compositing realm. So tell us what Bouquet actually does. Well, um, Bouquet focuses on uh, doing the defocus of images. Uh, we have tried to really mimic real-world lens simulation and uh, we've taken it next step by using the deep image technology to be able to sort of get around a lot of the artifacts that are used or are created in general or traditional Z defocusing tools. Okay, so there are, there are a couple of ways I could, you know, fake out uh, defocusing. Obviously I could roto us and put us back over the top of a blurred version that's got all sorts of problems. I could do it though with a Z depth in a traditional sense, but then what, I tend to get a pretty harsh edge and especially that doesn't work so well on motion blur, is that right? That's correct. Uh, I mean the problem is, is when you're dealing with defocus issues you need to know your Z distance from the actual lens plane. Uh, and when you only have one Z distance you can only actually defocus one, one, you only have one circle of confusion value to actually uh, blur the 
uh, convolution filter with. So by using the deep image data, you actually have multiple samples. And you, you, you can have multiple circles of confusion to give you much better looking, much smoother looking defocus. Because I mean, the whole point about uh, something being in focus or out is actually in of itself a misnomer because yeah. it basically goes from what we will all happily agree is sharp yeah. to some point where we all happily agree it's out of focus. But but there is no on and off for focus. So actually having really accurate Z-depth information through any one pixel is actually really valuable. Exactly, and I mean, it kind of comes back to the planoptic cameras and what they're trying to do with defocusing as well. And kind of deep images are like the CG version of planoptic cameras in that um, it gives us a lot more information to be able to refocus the image uh, more correctly um, and, and just give us the detail we need. I, tell you, I really want to get hold of your plugin because <laughs> I want to do some really cool pull focuses, which I imagine I could do a much better rack defocus, but a pull focus than I've ever been able to do before once I start grabbing hold of that, that deep compositing information that might get out of a render. That's correct. I mean, besides the fact that we can actually blur the values where we don't have the edge artifacts that you get from traditional Z values, because we can use the full RGB um, information, if you have your render passes coming out of CG, uh, you may have one foreground pass, one background pass. If you merge those together with a deep merge, then you start actually getting correct defocus values when you're merging or defocusing behind other CG values. Yeah, so if I shot somebody in uh, at a 1.4 or 1.2 on a lens, I could literally get their nose in focus and their, their ears out of focus. Exactly. Of course, we'd normally have a character as just one layer. But, but tell me, in the modern RenderMan implementation, and I say modern as in the like latest uh, version, not only do we have like an opacity value that effectively we can think of as a as a graduated grayscale at every point along the line, I know it's not quite that simple, but basically, we also have color information. Now, can you take advantage of both the the sense of a uh, where I am in Z space, but also the color shifts that happen through that volume in Z space? Uh, of course, yeah, definitely. We um, again, when we're blurring and defocusing, uh, whenever something—I guess traditionally, when you try and defocus, you're always sort of convolving an image that's in the foreground plane. You always get the artifacts where you kind of get ghosting. Um, if you do a deep merge or have those, that extra information from the renderer, it avoids the ghosting problems too, because you're actually convolving the color from behind the, the foreground layer. Which is one of the problems that even if I go to a deep compositing pipe which is not using color, I can actually still get something that doesn't quite look right and has this almost sense of, of uh, well, you call it a ghosting, I'm almost calling it an opacity thing, which means that we'd still need to break that render into yeah. a couple of passes. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's three stages. You've got uh, traditional Z-depth, you've got deep image Z-depth with just the Z-value and the opacity, and then you've got full deep image sort of compositing. And I guess it, um, you, know, you kind of need to pick which one works best for the shot. I mean, doing a full RGBA deep image render you know, it's a fairly large file, um, and so you know you may just sort of escalate the shots between being okay. We can use regular depth with this shot, and then RGBA sort of deep images for this really difficult shot. And the great advantage is because you're actually profiling lenses, we're actually going to because as we start getting into that that really specific debug, we're really down to like how many uh, sort of uh, blades there are on the actual lenses and stuff. I mean, yeah. it really actually makes quite a difference. And this is important, of course, in visual effects when I'm trying to marry in yeah. very exactly between live action and, and CG. Um, yeah. And we've got various um, controls over the actual kernel that we're using. When we do the real-world lens simulation, you can create like a, a polygonal version that actually represents the blades and the actual shutter of the camera. Um, and then you can have custom input as well. So generally what happens, we have a library um, of custom uh, defocus kernels. So if you go on set, you get the lenses you want. You get a sort of pen light and shoot it against black. And you can actually start reproducing the correct defocus value. or look of the defocus kernel from the actual lenses that you're shooting. Now does that extend to uh, anamorphics? Yep. 
Yeah, Brilliant. we can use uh, anamorphic lens shapes. Yeah. I'm sold. How do I get one? Is it is it on? Because you said Yeti was still in in beta effectively. That's right. Yeah. Is this shipping? Uh, bouquet shipping. You can go to our website right now. We've got a SIGGRAPH deal. Uh, one license is $99 and a site license is $999. Okay, well I would actually go further and say you should tell people what the URL is. Oh, sorry, uh, peregrinelabs.com slash bokeh. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you very much. Okay, big plug for next week. Fingers crossed we have an exclusive you are not going to want to miss. We have a team flying now to record this and that app should come out in about a week. So keep an eye out for app 119 of FX Guide TV on the website. Plus beyond that, we have IBC and heaps more coming up here at fxguide.com. Finally, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash fxguidenews. That's all we've got time for, so until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.